Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, it's episode 158. It is March 19th, 2020, and this is Human Factors Cast, the We Were Wrong edition. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf over there, across yes. from the internet quarantine walls that we are stuck in. Yeah, the quarantine internet box. There he is. Uh, yeah, we have uh, some excellent news stories um, that we are going to be talking about, and uh, you know, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite subject these days. Uh, that the hottest virus around. Um, she good looking a- again. Again, we're gonna be talking about that. So, but we are going to talk about things that are not the virus because we know that uh, uh, that that stuff is everywhere, and uh, you come here looking for not that. So, uh, anyway, uh, we got some the news stories this week. We got the, the U.S. government and the tech industry are discussing ways to use smartphone location data to combat the coronavirus. We're gonna continue that thread. Uh, we got the fastest supercomputer on Earth being deployed against the coronavirus. And then we're going to go take a quick break. And then we're going to be back and we're going to talk about not the coronavirus. We're going to talk about Sea Arts. Uh, this is this high velocity training uh, for the Navy. Um, and then there is uh, Worlds look to uh, transform humanity with spatial AI technology. So so some some non-coronavirus <laughs> human factors news to end off this episode with hopefully that'll be um you know i don't know about you blake uh but like for me i don't know listening to like all this news stuff it kind of gets depressing after a while because you're just like i just want to know what's going on and you sign up for text updates and it's like you know when things change things change but then like every day things change and it just feels like the situation's getting progressively worse and worse and uh, yeah so was, i don't know man so in if, do we have programming notes to go over because I don't want to just do. jump into bantering away. Yeah, uh, yeah. Check out Human Factors Minute. That's new. Um, just launched this week. Ancient Human Factors history, which I'm really proud of. Lots of cool topics in there. Uh, it's like highly produced for Human Factors. Highly produced, highly researched. It's it's a ton of fun. Something we're really proud of. Um, but yeah, so let's let's get back to the banter though. Uh, but yeah, do go check that out. It really does help out the show if you if you become a patron. Uh, everything goes back into the show. All right. But yeah, what's what's going on, Blake? I mean, like, this is weirdness. Th- things change every day. It feels like there's something, some new news every day that just is like, y- you know, and then and then when you realize we're following Italy's curve um, and where they're at right now, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I think this is going to sound real stupid, but I'm going to say it anyway. So I've kind of... I don't know if it's smartly done it, but I've like quarantined myself from the information that I'll allow myself to consume about the coronavirus or COVID-19 because I found so last you're self-quarantining week, from information. Yeah, I'm self-quarantining within the quarantine. It's very interception or interception, inception, inception. whatever it is. <laughs> quarantine within a quarantine. Yeah, you can tell that I'm still losing my mind nonetheless, right? Yeah, uh, I think but, a lot of us are. Yeah, but I, because I found myself in this really dark rabbit hole the other weekend, like Elise had just gone out of town and like a lot of this COVID stuff had, we had talked about it on the podcast, but it, it didn't seem as serious then for whatever reason to me. Like it was just like, yeah, it's going on, but it's well, it maybe it won't get, well, it won't escalate. Yeah. Uh, can I talk about that really quick? Because last week on the show, so you and I actually recorded last week's show on Wednesday. Yeah. And even by Thursday, things had changed so dramatically that I was like, Shit, did we put up the show? Like, uh, you know, I was saying last Wednesday that I was going to go to Disneyland and it wasn't that big of a deal. And then Thursday, Disney Parks closed Disneyland and it's like, that's unprecedented. And like, y- you know, so I I was like, do we even post the show? I was like, yeah, why, why not uh, get something out there? But like even one day later, that information had already become like it, it just gets more and more serious every day. So it re- yeah, it really does because you get like more and more information, and I think I think the problem we were talking about last week still exists now. There's so much information bloat on like how do you how do you even do the analysis to know what you're listening to and what you should be paying attention to versus what you shouldn't be, which has right. made it like still super difficult. I think for anybody, much less like somebody who's really tech savvy or somebody who even understands what's going on in the medical world to kind of know what information to digest and then what to make out of it. Cause there, I felt, I felt like 
Like I wasn't too worried about like all this social distancing stuff. And then by the time Monday rolled around, it was like, okay, there's no way I'm going to be going into the office. Cause this, this all seems like it's really taken a pretty serious turn. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I don't know. I can share a strategy that has kind of worked for me. And I think a lot of people are following this model, but you know, I think it all comes back to that local level, right? So like I've been following San Diego news to figure out, you know, what the County is doing um, as preventative measures, what what limits on size, you know, gatherings that you can have or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, that's so that's kind of where like my main focus is. is I'm looking to see what's going on locally, what stores are kind of hit the hardest, which we can also kind of talk about, too. But um, and then from there, it's like looking at the state level, like what kind of uh, what kind of things are coming down from the state level. Right. And like. um you know, there's just so much that this whole thing impacts that, you know, it impacts everybody. And, but I mean, like, you know, in a couple of years here, my kid's going to be going to school and it's like school's canceled through the rest of the year for a lot of places. And what kind of, what kind of impact does that have not only to your ability to learn, but socially like high school seniors right now are not getting that senior year that a lot of us did get to spend the last time they could ever get with their high school friends before they go off to college and like there's going to be like a whole generation of kids that like grew up with this thing and it's like uh, thought it might be normal i don't know man there's just so much stuff going on right now um anyway i kind of stole the mic just to kind of tell you about where i'm at and my strategy with following local then state uh then national level uh it's kind of how i've been following it and i follow national level maybe once every couple days and then you know state maybe once every couple days and local i'm checking almost uh you know hourly or daily yeah just so to kind of be so to kind of like limit the information i take in because like a lot of the the national even state stuff i'm getting through work emails like i i get updates to you know policy or whatever maybe right. kind of every day so i've used that as the medium for that kind of stuff if it's really that serious or impacts my work life i'll know about it so that's the approach i'm taking there but in terms of like taking in a lot of news or anything i basically rely because i there's a there's like a doctor that i followed for years like with different things from the ketogenic diet to you know strength and fitness to other virology things um and biohacking stuff and he's local to san diego so i've kind of followed him like doing a nightly check-in with these long posts that he'll put on instagram um, to get a sense of like really where things are in terms of, cause he works with a team of analysts to put together his podcast, which is focused on like a lot of the trends in health. Um, and what they've done is kind of shift focus from the normal kind of biohacking type stuff to just COVID-19 papers that are coming out, tests that are being done, all that kind of stuff. So they give like some kind of breakdown in podcast form throughout the week, but also just this kind of nightly, you know, 10 minute rant if you will about what's going on or what's the current state of stuff and so i've used that as really my medium to check in and like get a sense of what's going on really locally because he's talking about like in the california scene um right as well, as, well like, and you said he's local to, you yeah. said he's local to san diego too so yeah. yeah so it's it's been helpful to do that for me um because i think before i was trying to absorb way too much information about it and kind of it was in a lot of ways overwhelming for sure. Um, but then I use kind of, I don't know about yourself. I mean, I use a lot of family that live across the country and even some that live outside of the country is kind of a check in for, you know, how they're doing or what it's like in areas they live in. And thank goodness for all of them, even the even my stepdad, who who's out of the country in Ireland at the moment, I can't come back to the States. Um, even in his kind of area where the outbreak is bad, it's been kind of like relatively good for him in terms of being able to distance himself from people and stay out of hospitals and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, I thought, no, it's been massively important for me to kind of limit the information and try and go about my day-to-day life as, as much as I possibly can. Because uh, it gives me some, I don't know, piece of sanity I, at least, or at least yeah. some sense of control. Yeah, I feel that. Um I don't know. Like I, I was following it very closely over the weekend. Uh, we had a friend over. I was uh, jokingly calling it COVID con, um, but <laughs> well, it was only one friend, so it wasn't like a real, real threat to us. Uh, and you know, the the she had been kind of quarantined herself anyway, so it was it was like a mutual trust. You know, like 
So isn't I mean, that a th- weird concept in and of itself? When you go to like talk yeah. to some of your neighbors or any of that stuff, that you're almost suspicious of each other, or you're trusting each other like immensely by even getting near each other. Uh, yeah, and it's really wild. Like we've ordered in a couple times this week, you know, for like food delivery services, and it's like, hey, delivery instructions: knock on the door and uh, walk away. Leave <laughs> you the know, food and go. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, it's. Like there's this whole new ritual of like sanitizing your food containers before you actually eat too. It's like, it's wild, man. And like, I don't know, just I'm I'm thinking of like the societal impact this will have not only with like the high school seniors that I mentioned, but just like, you know, there's the environmental impact, you know, the earth is breathing (laughs) again because there's less pollution and, it's kind of wild to see what kind of transformation the actual physical world is going through while all of us are inside. And, um, you know, it's like there's going to be a whole new generation of babies born out of this. And, you know, what happens about the people who are uh, pregnant or just gave birth now that, um, you know, they're, they're struggling to find supplies in like grocery stores or, you know, convenience stores or something like it's it's crazy to me. It's absolutely crazy, right? Like, have you have you go- gone to any store? Like, have you have you braved the storefront uh, for any supplies in the last week? Yeah, because I definitely kind of had a meltdown over the weekend of like, oh man, I don't think there's going to be enough stuff. Because I w- I was under the impression that by some at some point this week we were going to be told here in California that we had to stay in our houses, like shelter um, in place. Yeah, which so- I, San Francisco's doing. Yeah, I know, and that's that's kind of insane, right? And, but it's it kind of makes sense with the amount of people per capita that right. are there. Um, and San Diego is a little more spread, but I was pretty sure that's what was going to happen. So I went to the grocery store on Monday, and I definitely experienced some odd things. Like it was, you know, right before eight o'clock, and people were not following traffic signals so that they could get to the grocery store faster. So, really? Yeah, so it was this really wow. weird and dangerous mood that felt like it was out and there was a lot of tension like as you as I kind of drove and then even walked into the grocery store, but for me it was a lot it was a lot better than I expected. Like I expected nothing to be on the shelves cuz me and Elise were getting friends sending pictures of like Walmarts that were completely empty whereas right. the the grocery store I ended up in like it had stuff, it didn't have everything you would want, but at least right, enough right, that right. you like stock up on a bunch of gear or whatever. So it wasn't that insane. Um, You're not one of the people who got like 20, 20 different packages of toilet paper. No, no, I wasn't really too worried about that. I was more concerned about like food, water, that kind of stuff. Yeah, us too. Um, but yeah, so it was weird, and you could, I, f- I swear, you could feel like the tension in the air just going through a grocery store, driving home, driving uh-huh. around, any of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so it was strange, but it wasn't as bad as it was in some other places for other people, for sure. How about you? Have yeah. you kind of ventured out and about? We have. Uh, it's been very strategic. So I will say I, I'm going to give everybody like a little tip here. And I mean, it's not the biggest tip, but it's it's a tip nonetheless. And so what we've done on Saturday, we went out to Target and throughout the day we were kind of checking the uh, on Google. It'll show you like times this is busy. Right. And it'll it'll also give you like a live counter based on location data of how busy it is currently. And so we kept checking in throughout the day. And around 7.30 or so, it it or maybe it was 6.30 a little earlier in the evening, it died down a lot, right? There was not a whole lot of people shopping there. And so we were like, do we brave it? Do we go out and try? And we did, and it wasn't really all that busy. So if you're worried about, like, exposure to other people, look at that Google. Um, they have – it's just like a little live tracker of how many – how busy it is at a location. Um, oh, yeah, it's kind of like that little bar graph that shows yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, and try to plan accordingly. And um, you know, if it says not busy, then go. Like we we were able to find, uh, like you said, not not everything was in stock, and it was you know some of the more expensive items on the shelf. Um, but we still got enough to kind of last us like a week or two. Um, you know, like I said, we ordered in a couple times just because we we are trying to push our supply as far as we can. And so it's like if we can order in one night and push an, a meal, you know, to the end of the two weeks or whatever it is, you know, it, it sounds like it's going to be a lot longer than two weeks. Um, but, you know, so that's kind of our strategy is, right, like, let's prolong the supply, 
but let's have that supply just in case. And so, uh, and that's been working for us. Um, yeah, we've done the same thing. It's basically like we got a bunch of supplies that we can use at some point. And, but as long as like small businesses and restaurants are open near us, I'm one happy to like still feed their, their economic growth or like at least yeah. keep their doors open while we can. And while they, they're open and just doing takeout. So I'm happy to do that. But also it, it kind of, it kind of makes my life easier as well. Like being able to go somewhere, right. pick up food, bring it home. And then just, if things get worse, we still have plenty of su- supplies down the road, um, for when the time comes. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're kind of in the same boat. Um, have you... I don't know. You mentioned that you're still going to work, right? So, like, you're you're no, not feeling like you're quarantined inside the house. Yeah. Uh, so have you been going out like out, outside of work hours, or is it just like to and from work, and that's kind of it? Um, actually, today I so I went to work. It, it was really weird Be, because of like the fact of going to work, even though there's only a few people there. Um, it still gives me the semblance of like normalcy, I guess. So today after work, like I was, I was really tired. I hadn't eaten all day. So I went to the grocery store and it was, it was just like going to the grocery store any normal day. Like things had been totally restocked. You really wouldn't have known anything was going on besides the, the few people wearing like rubber gloves and masks and stuff. So it was, it was kind of a weird and surreal experience. Like when I got home, I was like, huh. Oh wow. Like every, a lot of people have just been stuck inside all day. And I just feel like I just went and lived a normal day. Um, so, but that's kind of the most that I've ventured out, right? Because I'm working like part time at home and then part time at the office for uh, for different reasons. Um, but yeah, so just going in between the two of them, right? Yeah. So I've been I've been working at home primarily, and um, and you know it's it's weird because going out is this weird experience where. Like we live in an apartment complex, so we have to touch several buttons to summon an elevator to get down. Oh, that's to right. Op- yeah. Open a door to get to my car, and so it's like, you know, when I walk out the door, I say, "Okay, right hand for everything else, left hand for your face," uh, and you know, it's this like rule that I touch everything with my right hand. I open doors do all that and I touch my face with my left hand if I have any itches or anything and I just kind of reserve it for that just in case um and then as soon as I get in my car I sanitize my hands it's like this whole weird ritual right and it's like um you know well, we something I haven't even thought about because it's like I live on the first floor don't have to get on any like right. uh, elevators or anything that's nuts so I've been using the stairs mostly because it's only two points of contact it's two handles uh versus an elevator button uh and a door handle that are probably more used by people, right? So it's like I'm being strategic about my pathway as well. Uh, sometimes we can't with a stroller, right? Like we can't just take the stairs with a stroller, so, you know, we have to be careful. But the, the So we went out yesterday um, just to drive to the beach, and we kind of sat in the car and just looked at the beach, you know, rolled down the windows a little bit, got some fresh air. And a lot of other people had the same idea too. Uh, there were more people out on the beach than I thought there would be. Like, I don't know if you've seen some of the footage from like Florida. Oh, that like, was pretty nuts. Yeah. Some of the like some I of just, the South Beach po- photos and stuff. There's like going out and maintaining distance, but then there's just like recklessness, I think. And that kind of crossed the line for me. Yeah. Um, I so, think it did for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, it's it's just a weird feeling because you're like, you know, everybody out there. And then there's all these signs on the road that says beat COVID-19. So, sh- you know, stay distant or whatever. And it's like seeing those messages on some of the freeway signs, you're just like, ah, this thing is really scary. Yeah, it's it's very real, right? But so last week we talked a fair amount about kind of like the po- the potential positive aspects of some of this. Yeah. Like, like and so – now that it's a week later, because like, like you talked about at the beginning of the podcast, it's like if we had recorded a day later, we would have had a very different kind of view on the entire yeah. issue. Um, but at like a like more than a week into it, like with self-distancing and quarantine in the house and all that stuff kind of going on, are you still able to find like kind of positive outlets or positive aspects of what you're experiencing? Um. Yeah, I guess. I mean, like just the, the, the humanity of it all. Um you know, seeing people come together distantly is is such a weird phenomenon, right? Like, I feel like people are more connected than ever now, um, even when they were even, you know, in the physical world, if you will. But I feel like technology has allowed us all to kind of cope with this thing in a way that uh, years ago, you know, we wouldn't be able to. And that's just kind of an incredibly positive message. Like, I've seen, you know, the the the... 
singing from the balconies in Italy and all that stuff. It's just it's just a, a massively humbling moment in our history where we are all coming together to protect the vulnerable population. And I guess that's kind of the bright jewel in all this. Um, and, you know, there's not been any singing from our balconies um, over here at my apartment complex. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's always there's always time We're we're like I said, we're about two weeks behind the Italy curve. So <laughs> we might get there. Who knows? Sure. Yeah. How about you, Blake? I've I've been really it's kind of weird. So I've been super proud of the company I work at and how we were able to how they were, even though it felt like it was a little bit behind some other companies in terms of when they were, when we were going remote, just the ability to actually make it work and figure out how to do it, especially in kind of the stressful environment that we work in from a contracting perspective. Uh, so it's been kind of cool to watch and see and uh, experience how kind of like the Microsoft tool set that we use really has allowed people to have basically a remote job at a place where you don't necessarily get remote jobs. Um, it's yeah. allowed, allowed us all to stay very connected, still have meetings, almost like it's the same job, but now it's just a remote thing. So that's been kind of interesting to watch for sure. Um, yeah. And that's true. That's true for a lot of different companies too, right? Like this whole, this whole movement or uh, this whole virus basically has basically asked everyone to work from home uh that that could and i think companies are going to be a lot more savvy after this is all over and saying wow no we still as productive uh and you know perhaps workers have more peace of mind being at home or you know more comfort well you know whatever it is i don't know like i i just the i i see it as incredibly positive like i don't know since i've been working at home uh i've never felt more productive in my life um you know and that that's saying a lot so I hope I hope this trend continues and companies just wisen up and go, yeah, we could do this anywhere. We can hire people anywhere in the country and have them work for us as long as they're willing to work with the time zone difference. And that's kind of crazy to me. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting because like working with Design Lab for the past like almost two years, I guess, or two years this month. Um, like I've experienced what it's like to work remotely in a lot of different time zones and sometimes in a lot of different countries. Working with different students, working with like the the design lab group proper like so i've experienced what what the ecosystem can look like but then like taking a company that's never done it with in some cases people that are not as technologically savvy and then just giving them a small tool set like microsoft teams that allows everything to be very very seamless and easy to do it's just been really incredible to watch um, and I'm kind of thankful for all those different companies, whether it's Google or Microsoft, that provide mediums like like Google Hangouts, like you and I use, or like Teams calling that put you kind of in touch with people, so you can see them face to face, you can hear their voice. It's not just like you know you're using the instant messenger feature all day trying to communicate points. Because um, I do think that the it is a bit of a like limiting interaction. Um, when you only are like typing things at each other and like being able to see somebody communicate like you and I do with our kind of like reading each other's facial expressions and stuff like right. that just provides a very different experience. Um, but also something that I thought was interesting that you said is the community aspect and watching how people do band together. Like for the first time, I think since I moved to California, besides when I was in grad school and lived lived with a couple of buddies or lived near them at least. Like, I feel like I have a small community around me with my neighbors that I, like, I know them. And I feel like if, if, if I was ever in a bind, they would be able to be there for me and same for me for them. So that's kind of reassuring, like living in a place where you don't have a whole, whole lot of family that lives around or anything like that. So it's been kind of a interesting experience, just like social experiment wise. Yeah. And I will say like from the, the human perspective of this, from like art and all that stuff, I think we'll see a lot of art coming out of this. Um, there's a lot of free time that people have now, uh, especially those displaced from their jobs, um, that, you know, and the, the whole financial aspect of this whole thing, you and I are fortunate enough to be able to sustain a job through this. Um, yeah, because a lot of people are not, that's a lot sure. of people are not. And it's, it's absolutely frustrating, um, for me that there's not backup plans and support for those people. Um, but politics aside, I think there's going to be a lot of art that comes out of this. And I think it's 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 kind of a great thing, right? There's going to be a lot of songs, a lot of, um, you know, people. I know, Mateo even posted like a hackathon that was going on, like a like a virus hackathon or something that um, is, you know, everyone can do it remotely. And that's so cool to me. Um, and I just can't wait to see what comes out of this. It's, it's really exciting. 
Absolutely, yeah. That's going to be a really interesting part when we get past like whatever it is, the six-month mark, seven-month mark, and what all has kind of come out of it besides kind of you know the, the economic implications, but all the positive things like the art, the music, the different technology solutions. Like We'll talk about some of them that are coming up right now on the podcast, but I mean, I can only imagine like from the hackathon that you know, Mateo's talking about, to, I know GitHub's putting on a few different ones right now as well. Um, and I know Google's working on different solutions. Like Elise was telling me about like an extension last night where you can basically watch Netflix with your friends over the internet. Yeah. Like just silly things like that, that puts you like, again, in that deeper connective state where you're separated from people and, but we're using technology to bring you just a little bit closer. So it feels a little bit more like home. Yeah, it's that's really cool to see. Uh, so yes, there is a bright lining to all this. Well, uh, I think we've gone on long enough. We went 26 minutes <laughs> talking about this uh, in our personal life. So why don't we go ahead and get into the news? That's right. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of coronavirus. This could be anything from medical privacy. <laughs> Do you see what I did there? Uh, human Factors. <laughs> As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it is fair game for Blake and I to sit here and talk about. Blake, what do we have up this week? All right. So this week, we got the U.S. government and tech industries working together to use smartphone data to combat the coronavirus. So the U.S. government is actively in talks with Facebook, Google, and a wide array of tech companies and health experts about how they can use location data gleaned from American cell phones to combat the novel coronavirus, including tracking whether people are keeping keeping one another at safe distances to stem the outbreak. Public health experts are interested in the possibility that the private sector companies could compile that the data in anonymous aggregated forms, which they could use to map the spread of infection, according to three people familiar with the effort, who spoke on the condition of anonymity because the project is in its early stages. This approach could also leave some Americans uncomfortable, depending on how it's implemented, given the sensitivity when it comes to details of their daily whereabouts. Multiple sources stress that if this project proceeds, they are not going to be building a government database. And in recent interviews with Facebook executives, they said the U.S. government is particularly interested in understanding patterns of people's movements, which can be derived through data the company collects from its users who allow it. The tech, comp- the tech giant in the past has provided the information to researchers in the form of statistics, which in the case of the coronavirus could help officials predict the next hotspot or decide where to allocate overstretched health resources. So, Nick, this is always a popular topic on our show of just what do we what how much and how comfortable are we with giving access to data when it comes to your phone or comes to you using specific applications. And in this case, using that information like your location or like the distance you are from other people based off your location to try and understand the spread of the coronavirus. So this is, again, a, a sticky situation I think we find ourselves in. So from your perspective, how do you kind of feel about this kind of content? From a public health perspective, it's absolutely necessary, right? It's under, it's how we understand where this thing is and how people are reacting to um, everything that's out there, right? It's not, it's a, it's a little messy to parse. I think Um, it's not a clean experiment by any means, right? It's, there's a million different messages out there, which one stuck with people to make them stay in place, which one hit the people to actually make them go outside. Who knows? Um, And so it's like, it's, it's this weird situation where you sacrifice your privacy which is your location data which you know if you are following directions and staying at home to slow the spread flatten the curve i think you know it's i I don't know how much that says about a person right because it doesn't tell you what they're doing with their time i feel like actually going places (laughs) tells you a lot more about a person's behavior than anything else, right? Um, That's a great left, point, yeah. They've left the house, and they have, um, they've gone to this store. Well, they clearly have a preference for Target. Uh, so let's do some targeted Target ads to them. Um, and so, like, I don't know. I, f- I feel like, you know, having the location data, if you are following the rules, if you're staying in your house, 
I have no problem sharing my data because you can't see what I'm doing in my house. You can't see. I mean, there's a bunch of other trackers, right? Uh, like cookies on websites. So, you know, so you can be like, oh, he's going to YouTube a lot. He's checking out entertainment. So that way he's not bored. I get it. Um, but I feel like in terms of just location tracking, I feel like staying in one place is not giving a whole lot of information to like advertisement companies. So the trade-off to me is quite simple. You give up that data so that way they can see, oh, okay, you know, there's a lot of movement over in this area and people are really close together over in this area. Why? What's going on in that area? Do we need to remove a sign there? Do we need to... Um, you know, close this park where a lot of people are gathering at. Like, there's a bunch of different things that you can deduce from that aggregated data. Uh, so, yes, I'm all for it. How do you feel about it? I think it's one of these times where data is so important in a case like this. That And the fact that we are – I want to throw a couple of caveats out here. I am not very versed in this stuff. I'm just regurgitating a lot of stuff more in, like, a parrot form than anything. But I know that right now a big problem is that we're unable to have enough enough tests for just the coronavirus or SARS-2 to be able to give it to just anybody who wants it or anybody we even may need to give it to, to to verify whether they actually have it or maybe they just have the flu, whatever it may be. So the more data that we can be collecting about, you know, people's movements, are they actually following protocols? If they're not in an area, is it resulting in any kind of spread or can we connect it to the spread or are we even seeing kind of the opposite where potentially maybe we're not seeing a giant rate of infection but we are seeing a lot of people that are out more they're shopping more they're interacting with other people more often based off of just location data um, I think anything to really build a big a better picture of how this kind of infection looks is worth kind of giving up some of your you know, private rights as a citizen about where you are, what you're doing. Um, and I think a lot of the, the way that it's going, been <laughs> the way this article makes it sound like the U.S. government's going about it as well as like with tech giants, it's not as if they're hiding it from anybody. It's not like we're running into, you know, one of those situations we did with Facebook a couple of years ago or a year ago where they had kind of been, you know, using a lot of data and they had a data breach and all that kind of stuff. It's not being used maliciously against you. It's very obvious what it is about. And when you read things like this, if it makes you nervous, all all it really takes is for you to turn that feature off on your phone. Now, I'm sure there's pe plenty of people out there who are saying like, well, that doesn't really do anything. And you may be right. There may be no way to really stop the collection of your geolocation from a mobile device, but at least you have the simulation of an option here. Um, I don't know. I think when it comes to something like this, where it's affecting so many people, if this if this gives any kind of health experts an edge in any way, or any of the statisticians that are working on like how the spread is looking, or if or if we're even flattening by putting these other protocols in that we have with social distancing and closing restaurants, then that's great. I think it's a, a good way to understand because we can't do like high scale research and we're not testing a lot of <laughs> independent variables here. If we can see trends based on what we're doing with location data, I'm happy to give it up. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, if it, <laughs> another kind of silver lining to this, if human factors doesn't work out for me, I think I want to become an epidemiologist because that is a really fascinating field to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, um, this is making me want to become like a data scientist. That's this stuff seems so interesting, and like the amount of kind of virology studies I've kind of glanced through. Uh, it's just been really fascinating to go through some of the statistics. It's just like I was in grad school all over again. I know, yeah, it's super interesting. Um, I don't have much else to add to this except for I love that they're doing this. I feel like this gives us a lot of insight on how people are taking news and how people are reacting to the situation, um, and I think it's great. There, there is one caveat I wanted to throw in here, and maybe it doesn't even need to be said, but I feel like it should be. Uh, I just want to warn people of if they are enticed by visiting websites that are very much they're advertising that they can show you the map of the coronavirus and oh, stuff like yes. that. It's worth being careful about because, and I think there's a couple of government resources related to this, but there are places that are actively trying to hack and steal data from you or put ransomware on you um, because you're visiting the website. So just be careful yeah. the like the URLs that you're going to related to the coronavirus stuff. And I will say that extends past just websites. Like I've gotten a couple calls pretending to be SDG&E, which is our local utility here in San Diego, saying, hey, your bill is due now. Uh, please pay. You know, so I went to this SDG&E website and paid it there. But 
there's scammers going out trying to take advantage of the situation, so just be careful out there. Yep. All right. Uh, why don't we go ahead and move on to the next story here? All right. So now we're bringing supercomputers in to solve the problem of the coronavirus. So the U.S. Department of Energy has announced at the summit a supercomputer will be used to attempt to find a treatment or cure for COVID-19. Summit is the fastest supercomputer on Earth, and the reason the DOE is tapping into the world's fastest supercomputer for this project is that trying to find methods of inhibiting or attacking a virus is computationally a very taxing problem. So when trying to understand new biological compounds like viruses, researchers in wet labs grow the microorganism and see how it reacts in real life to the introduction of new compounds. But this can be a slow process with and without computers that can perform digital simulations to narrow down the range of potential variables. Um, but even there, even with these kinds of computing computers in existence this is still super challenging so computer simulations can examine how different variables react with different viruses but when each of these individual variables can be compromised comprised of millions or even billions of unique pieces of data and compounded with the need to be run in multiple simulations this can quickly become a very time intensive process using a commodity of hardware so thanks to the supercomputer researchers screened nearly 8,000 compounds in a matter of days and identified 77 potential beneficial small molecule compounds that show evidence of inhibiting SARS-2 COVID-2. So that's pretty, pretty insane, Nick, to like know that once again, the power of computers is helping us kind of rapidly understand a changing environment uh, like our, that is related to biology, um, but is actually helping to simulate and run a w- run tests that can hopefully come up with something that gets us closer either to a vaccine or an inhibitor of this kind of virus. Yeah, I think it's cool to see kind of the world uh, coming together and putting all the resources they can into fighting this thing, right? Uh, and that includes the world's most powerful supercomputer. Um, I- I'm struggling to find the human factors application here, but I think the the biggest thing is that we are throwing everything we got at this thing and um you know the the outputs from the uh from the calculations that this computer is running the simulations right i think i think that is valuable information to the people who are using the data right Oh, definitely, yeah. And I think it allows people to not be stuck in doing some of the computational work. So it lets you keep medical professionals focusing on other aspects of the problem besides just trying to come up with a cure, maybe better understanding either COVID-19 or the impacts that SARS-CoV-2 has on people's lungs. Um, So I think there is kind of an application here in that it's, again, bridging using technology to take over tasks that are harder for humans to complete by hand or by, you know, smaller computers, if you will, and allowing people to focus on focus their expertise in places that are different and might be problem solving in a better way than they would be spent trying to run simulations. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, we are looking at um, spending less time looking uh, and doing the manual labor, right? It's, it's a computer doing it. We're, we're trusting that automation. We're trusting these simulations to come out uh, and perform tasks that would take humans weeks, months, years to complete. Potentially, um, yeah. And, and that's that's amazing, right? It, it's the, now there's more time spent on analysis rather than um, actually doing the calculations. And that's that you're right that it is time saving for the operators in that sense. Absolutely, um, it's it's kind of odd that it's like a supercomputer run by the Department of Energy. Uh, so that's I again I think it's a cool kind of cross-functional thing here that's going on between the government and then the health industry because I'm not sure that you would necessarily you know make that connection in many other aspects but since this is a problem of such a large scale I could see you know needing to pull on different branches of the government or departments of the government and then even within different departments of health um, whether it's like virology epidemiology looking and working together so it's it's kind of a, an interesting blend of different groups coming together to work on this problem yeah um all right well i have nothing else to add on this one um do you add anything else no i just think it's incredible that there's a supercomputer that can do any of this 
All right, well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back to break down the rest of the news stories right after this. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors Etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we're back. Uh, before we continue, I just want to thank all of our friends over at The Washington Post, Extreme Tech, U.S. Navy, and Biz Journals for all of our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, you can follow us all over social media or our Slack for links to the original articles. I do have to note that because of the quarantine, uh, the whole family's home. <laughs> so you might be hearing some background noise, um, oh, like so little nice. raptor screeches. So apologies for that. Um, <laughs> and I do want to mention too, in our, in our, uh, we, we still haven't updated our, our, um, our Patreon commercial, but, uh, we do have human factors minute that is brand new. Uh, it is three weeks old, but we have a year's worth of content for you. It is three weeks old and we have a whole year. Um, and I, I did do a sample last week on the show of some topics. Uh, we got methodology, we got history we got conferences we got technical groups we got subgroups of other conferences and groups there's a lot of stuff in there um there's uh, yeah what what are the human factors terms human factors history events uh lots of stuff lots of stuff in there so please go check it out if it's of any interest to you it's highly produced highly um it's something we're very proud of uh it, you know we put a lot of effort into this um and so the nice thing about this is that you can either wait a year for all this stuff to come out, download it all, and just binge it in one go, or you could listen to it week to week, and it's it's a very, very little uh, time commitment for a hyper-focused um, subset of content. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, we are done talking about that other thing that's going on in the news so we, <laughs> we're going to get back to the human factors side of things here for a little bit. I mean, you know, things have been kind of applicable, but we're going we're gonna to get back to the human factors side. So, Blake, we got two more news stories. Let's try to get back into it. Let's go. All right. So the Carrier Advanced Reconfig- Reconfigurable Training System, or CARTS, ushers in a new standard in mobile interactive training designed to meet the instructional needs and expectation of tech-savvy sailors, a custom learning through hands-on classes that exploit augmented virtual and mixed reality learning tools. So since December, the U.S. Gerald R. Ford CVN78 has been conducting multiple underweight tests and training evolutions as part of its 18-month phase of operations known as post-delivery tests and trials. Scheduled to continue throughout the mid throughout mid-2021. So the crew on this first-class aircraft carrier are certifying fuel and onboard combat systems as well as exercising the flight deck, launching, and arresting aircraft as part of a critical aircraft compatibility testing. In preparations for these complex tasks, many sailors have attended unique training courses conducted at the CRH facility. So this facility is a 1,000-square-foot reconfigurable classroom that offers high-velocity Learning, an integral part of the Sailor 2025 concept of providing ready, relevant learning at the Sailor's point of need. So CRS provides innovative tools for delivering the right training at the right time in the right way to cruise in a modern spacious spaces, all in the shadows of the ships on which sailors serve anyhow. So the training site often consists of two standalone 53-foot trailers, which may operate in either either pairs with one providing electronic classroom and the other a maintenance lab or independently. So adjustable classroom configurations can accommodate up to 16 students, each training on two 24-inch touchscreen monitors with instructors teaching a single class or two classes of eight students. So Nick, this is kind of 
kind of nuts that we're seeing like a, again an evolution of bringing a lot of tech that's kind of like hi-fi so everything from you know just having better classroom settings to even using augmented or virtual reality or as they say mixed reality learning tools to kind of get sailors ready for jobs they'd have to complete while on deployment so it's that's a pretty sweet deal i know the navy's worked a long time with like things like oculus rift or has had a lot of hopes and dreams for stuff like that from comp- from you know programs like different DARPA projects that have come out, but this looks like it's actually being put into play for teaching sailors how to do their jobs. Even though I'm, I'm super into VR and love all that. Can I just tell you my favorite part of the story is not that it's, it's the fact that these classrooms are reconfigurable, tailorable, and um, basically adjustable to whatever the need for the training application is. I think that is super cool because these they're modular now. You know, you can you can basically set up a training facility, and you know the way it is in the Navy a lot of times is that, or in the military just in general is that you'll send personnel to a specialized location uh, that they learn knowledge and then bring back to their post. And this is this almost seems the opposite. It's like let's bring the post to them and train in these adjustable rooms that can uh, modify themselves to be whatever the need is and i like that approach it's it, it seems very uh progressive to me you know in in uh in from my perspective a very archaic system sometimes the the military just in general you know like i think it's it's uh it's great to see that there is uh, an effort to sort of adapt and to change the way we train personnel um, for, you know, some of the best practices that we see in industry. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the modularity aspect of it is really important, especially when we're talking about the Navy and probably the military in general. Cause I mean, a lot of the, a lot of times you'd have to build these kind of classrooms outside off of a ship and it would be a standalone classroom set up specifically for like one, you know, one really specific job or like a job where five people do it and they're in a specific configuration yet you have x amount of monitors and systems in this in the space and it's only used for a specific training purpose where in this case it seems like they're able to get a lot more high fidelity training out of a out of a different set of configurable spaces and then they can also bring in the different aspects of like putting virtual reality or augmented reality into injecting it into these different training areas which allow you to not only you know potentially train a lot of different operators on multiple types of jobs but also like put you in more realistic situations so one thing uh, this is kind of silly and i can't remember the actual phenomenon this is but early in one of my site classes a a teacher suggested that you study in the classroom that you're going to take a test in because you may be more likely to be able to remember specific facts or remember the answers to questions um that was something i definitely exploited a lot i would go to an empty classroom where i was going to take a test the day before and study there the entire day um, and this kind of effect here could be something similar. If you're able to train in a room that is very much the same as the one you'll be sitting in, in the same configuration of, right. you know, monitors or say even the same people being able to like up that reaction time and muscle memory of interacting with those different people and in the same space can really kind of save you some time in some of these more safety critical situations. Like they talk about with the different, you know, airplane aircraft takeoff and landing situations that they are training here. Could save lives too. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think this is this is awesome. I think that's my favorite part is that these are adjustable and configurable. Um, I I do want to kind of push us along here, Blake, because I know we spent a lot of time up front talking about um, the banter. Uh, so uh, we do have one more news story, but I think we're going to skip it because I don't feel super passionate about it. We can always talk about it next week Absolutely. if there's not if there's not ten thousand coronavirus <laughs> news stories to talk about. Coronavirus uh, part three. We will not do that to you guys next week. But since we didn't do Reddit last week or or anything from the community, I think it's really important that we do get back to the community and uh, and do that. So let's get into the next part of the show. That came from. It came from. That's right. It came from Reddit. 
This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet. We search everywhere. We search the internet. We search the Human Factors forums. We search uh, HFES. We search Reddit. We search Twitter. We search our emails. We search everything to bring you topics to the community. That's you guys. That's everyone. Everyone. All y'all. In the field of Human Factors. All y'all. <laughs> uh, and anything is fair game for us to talk about. Uh, so we have um, two uh but I think we'll only talk about one because we're running out of time. So let's go ahead and get into this second one because I think I want to talk about that one a little bit more. This one's by user Calocity, um, and this looks to be from the Human sub Human Factors subreddit. This is, uh, would you say experimental psychology and human factor psychology are fairly similar? Question mark. They go on to write, how similar or different are they? What do you personally think is the key differences? Most importantly, do you think there can be an advantage for starting your master's degree from a bachelor's in experimental psychology as to just a bachelor's in general psychology. <clears throat> a side question along this. Would you consider human factor psychology a STEM major? Why or why not? Blake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So this is going to be one of my opinion pieces. I'm not 100% sure. That well, I'm that's what we're doing here. That's, <laughs> this is our opinion part. Yeah, because the experimental psychology thing and human factors are fairly similar. Mm, maybe. I feel like you you can use a lot of the th same things you learn maybe in experimental psych um, in a human factors degree. And in, at least in my experiment, experience in grad school, you could kind of take two very specific tracks. You could, you know, end up sticking in the psychology lane, applying human factors methods, whether it was, you know, working with medical companies, continuing the field, writing, you know, writing different papers on new user research methods or situation awareness techniques and stuff like that. So the, in that way, it's very much related to, you know, experimental psychology where you're testing out new methodology, writing papers about it, going to conferences and talking about them um, versus also too, you have like the applied aspect of, I guess, human factor psych. So that's, that's more related to kind of the second question where you find that it could be a STEM major or is related um, where you're dealing with some of the engineering aspects of things. How does it apply to a computer science when you're talking about interacting with computer scientists or developing applications? Or how does it play out in a job where you're kind of interacting with multiple different types of stakeholders and applying methods versus just writing or doing, you know, research about things? Um, I, I don't know. I guess I actually come from an experimental psychology background because I focused a lot on animal learning early in my psychology career as an undergrad. So I focused on a lot of just experimental psych and then learning psychology and then transitioned to human factors psych where really it felt very similar to me, but there was more targeted methodology we were learning that was related to doing applied human factors work, um, but still using the experimental psychology rigor when it came to running studies or putting together research ideas. So that, that's kind of where I come from, at least on how are they similar um, Nick, what your what's your experience? Because you have a little bit of a different background. It's all the same. That was easy. Yeah, I mean, well, I okay. So, like, look here's <laughs> here's my here's my honest thought. Um, you yeah, you can go two routes in human factors, um, or just psychology in general, right? Let's just talk about psychology in general. You can go the experimental or applied, and ultimately, it comes down to. You know, do do you want to? I don't know, man. I feel like everything in experimental should be able to be applied in some way. That's kind of the fundamental philosophy that I've always subscribed to. If, like, you're trying to figure something out, um, why are you doing it? Uh, you know, like, if there's there's some experimental studies where you're like, what's the purpose behind this? Uh, and somebody, I don't know. It's just like. I, I feel like I'm biased right now. <laughs> I feel like my bias is showing. Is my bias showing? <laughs> but I mean, like, look. Here's the thing: is 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 uh, you can almost even if it's even if it is not connected to any applied work, you can almost make it applied by simply adding more to it, right? In any case. So, to me, um. I feel like experimental gives you that good baseline of like, here's what a clean experiment looks like. This is everything in a perfect control. This is what it would look like. And then as you start getting applied and applied and applied, it gets more dirty and messy 
And so if you want to look at it from that perspective, right, give yourself a good baseline. This is what a perfect experiment looks like. But don't lock yourself into that train of thought. Like, understand that things will change. You'll have to adapt. And that's what being human factors is. At least in my mind, you know, there's a lot of compromises that we have to make, uh, be it through technology, be it through politics, be it through any other any other way. And the more we can sort of learn to adapt and learn to work with constraints, and I think cre- constraints almost create more creativity, right? Um, versus like, here's a here's an experiment, it's free reign, here's all the controls and all that stuff. So I, I don't know, that's, that's my thoughts. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Blake, to make it, to soften my blow? Uh, I think like experimental, I think it's good to have a balance of both in your the way you approach problems, especially if you're a human factors psychologist. Um one other well hold on before I go there, because it's it's one thing in experimental psychology that I find interesting. Like like you talked about the rigors there. It really helps you develop good experimental methodology and then you just have to re- be really prepared to pivot and understand that in the applied world you have less time, resources, and you have to make a lot of assumptions and test them and be wrong and then test them, test other assumptions. Um, experimental psychology also has the benefit of furthering the field, like from a, you know, theory perspective, you know, enhancing theories of attention, machine learning, that kind of stuff. Uh, and this side question, I know I kind of talked a little bit about it, but I thought I'd throw this in there too. So it says, we consider human factor psychology a STEM major. I think it really depends on what school you go to. And typically you're probably, I'm going to say it's more of a STEM major if it's like a human factors engineering uh, degree versus just psychology. Um, I know in my case, like I did have engineering classes I had to take for from like systems engineering courses as well as some um, computer science courses and development courses. Um, but it wasn't very focused heavily on like engineering or like a whole lot of engineering type coursework. Uh, so I think it can go either way, just depending on what kind of school you're going to or what made what title you end up with at the end of it. I don't know. I I don't. I've never liked STEM. I've liked STEAM, uh, because I feel like the science part of it is definitely psychology. I think it is. It is science, and there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of engineers and physician or uh, sorry physicists and um, biologists that would argue with that. But I, I it is right. You are putting together an experimental design, uh, and the art piece of it comes in when you're having to work with constraints so also too we're dealing with humans right so there's there's less like uh less structure you can impose on it but it definitely does fit into the science i guess when i think of stem i do think a lot more of the engineering and mathematics parts well yeah that's that's what i'm saying is that's that's the stigma if you will that's the perception of stem is that it is just the hard sciences where i think soft sciences have a place in it and uh, I th- I feel like adding that A for arts. Um, oh, steam! <laughs> yeah, I get it now. Yeah, adding the A for arts I think is is also necessary um, because I feel like at least in in psychology there's an art to putting together some of these studies and finessing results. To not, I'm going to say finessing results, but know what I mean. Finessing how to communicate results effectively, not necessarily fudging results of data well i think let's be clear there yeah i think there's a bit like i think part of why i like psychology is because there's a lot of philosophy that's within it so it's like really thinking about hard problems and how to come at them and explain them in different ways and then also not being always able to define them in terms of hard concrete science but they still exist like consciousness um so I, i tend to agree with you i think there is definitely room for all of it together and i i think Ultimately, I'm really a big proponent of being well-rounded in all of those letters in some way because I think it ultimately helps you helps round out whatever field you're in. You don't necessarily have to be an expert in each one of those letters, right? But I think understanding the impact of them across all the fields is really helpful. Yeah, I agree. Humans are hard. All right, well, let's get out of here. That's it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news stories this week. Are you tired of talking about coronavirus? Us too. You can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us all over social media at Human Factor or H Factors Podcast. If you like what you hear, want to support the show, you can always leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice or consider supporting us on Patreon. Like I said, we are very excited about Human Factors Minute. Please go check it out. 
uh, help support the show, help, uh, yeah, help, help everybody, <laughs> help yourself, learn learn some human factor stuff. Uh, and of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com, or shoot us an email at show at humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about uh, how to make a quarantini? If you guys want to know how to make a quarantini, you can find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media screaming uh, like my child at Nick underscore Rome. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.